Good morning, church. Like Adam said, what is what a blessing uh, for us to be able to gather and worship the Lord Jesus this morning. We, um, I believe, we have a number of people who are who are out sick or traveling, and I think that'd be a good reason for us to to pray for them. We're going to pray for them here in just a moment. But I'm glad that you're here this morning, and I think you're going to be really blessed uh, from our speaker our teacher this morning. Uh, Jim Elleth is the founder and president of Christian Communicators Worldwide. For nearly 20 years, uh, prior to the beginning of CCW, he served as teaching pastor on or on the uh, teaching pastor or on the pastoral team of churches in Florida, Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. Since 1985, Jim has addressed Christian ministries, seminaries, Bible schools, universities, churches, pastors groups throughout most of the United States and in approximately 40 foreign countries. Jim has been privileged to address groups in all kinds of settings. Um, he's a passionate communicator, uh, loves to communicate. Uh, he's written books. There's some books that are out here in the uh, Welcome Center uh, that I encourage you to, to check out. And um, Jim's articles appear in a variety of periodicals and journals, and his messages and interviews are frequently heard on radio. He was featured in a seven-part interview called How Children Come to Faith in Christ with Family Life Today, hosted by Dennis Rainey, and in a five-part series on Revive Our Hearts with Nancy DeMoss. Jim has contributed chapters in several other books as well as writing extensively. Um, you can find many of his articles on ccwtoday.org. Above all, Jim wishes to point people to Christ and to engage leaders and other believers in serious Bible intake. In addition to his writing and travel, Jim began Christ Fellowship of Kansas City in 2003. Jim is married to Pam and has three children, Benjamin, Brian, and Laura. And how many grandchildren, Jim? Four grandchildren now. Um, Jim's been, been doing this for, for quite a while and and years ago, um, I don't know exactly how it began, but they began to, to do uh, what they called Bible-intensive retreats with, with all sorts of, of groups, but uh, primarily pastors and leaders. And that's why he's here this weekend. We just finished up one um, that a few of us were able to attend. And, and I have to tell you, there, there's, there's no substitute for just digging into God's Word and marinating on that, especially with some other believers where you can work out the truth of God's Word. God's Word is meant to be thought about and marinated on and, and meditated on. And, and uh, it's been a, a wonderful influence in my life um, for Jim to help me and, and many of my friends and fellow pastors and leaders learn how to, how to study the Bible and dig into the Word of God. And it's really not that difficult. It just takes time and a commitment. And I think that's an important thing, and he's not going to, um, I think he's going to talk about fellowship this morning, but I'm going to talk about the Bible. I think the Bible is so important. Um, you have to do more, and, and that's a challenge to each of you. You have to do more than just hear it from me or from Adam or from Donnie. It has to be something that, that, that you do in your relationship with God, that you put into your DNA and into your bloodstream. And um, there's nothing like having the Word of God in you. Uh, Jim's going to come and talk to you this morning, I believe, from 1 Corinthians 11, unless you've changed. You're still 1 Corinthians 11, right? Okay. Jim's one of the, he can get up and preach about five sermons uh, off the top of his head, I think. But um, some of our core values here at Wyatt 
touched directly upon our fellowship. Uh, we, we, uh, we have seven core values. Some of you know them. Uh, some of you don't. But three of them, one has to do with generosity with our lives and possessions. Another one has to do with accountability to live holy. And another one has to do with unity in Christ-centered community. Now, our church is more than this service. We're more than an event. We're a family. We're a fellowship. And Jim's going to come and speak to you about some of the important things that, that might be connected uh, to that this morning. But, but I pray that your heart will be open and that you'll question yourself and challenge yourself and allow God to speak to you and to direct your life to do what he is calling you to do. So let's pray together, and Jim, you can come. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that leads us. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit that guides us. We're thankful for a body of believers that can support us and can strengthen us. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity and the freedom to gather together today. And I pray for Jim as he comes and speaks, Lord. I pray for, uh, before that, I pray for those that are sick and are traveling, God. Maybe some of them are able to listen online. God, that you'll bless their hearts as well and that you'll strengthen our body. And I pray that you'll strengthen Jim as he comes and preaches God's word, preaches your word to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Josh. Am I turned on? Okay, you turn me on. That's great. Well, great to be here. I'm actually not only an Arkansan, but I'm a Southern Arkansan. I was born in Fordyce, and my mother's a, from Warren, the youngest of 14 kids. And there are lots of Carters and Mosleys from that side of the family around that part of the world. And um, then uh, my brother actually was the youth director at, in East Main Church. Is that still around here? East Main Church when he was uh, much much younger. My older brother, my my father pastored in Lake Village. My brother-in-law pastored in Waldo, one of his early pastorates. And uh, I have spoken in a lot of the churches, a lot of the towns, you know, in the churches across southern Arkansas. My first pastorate was in Washington, Arkansas. I think it's about an hour and a half or so north and west a little bit. Just past Hope, we used to say. So, and it was that way at that time. And uh, I think now it's a, it's a state park, isn't it? But uh, it's a privilege to be back here. I mean, it just smells right, you know. This really seems good to me. I really like that. I, I spoke in Hamburg one time and was... After a weekend of hard work, they gave me $13, and I thought I really deserved that, you know, so <laughs> for all the work I did. But I had great experiences all across the, the southern part of this, uh, this great state of Arkansas. So it feels like being home, actually, to me, to be with you guys. So thank you for your hospitality. The Harmons are really been great to us already, and, and we're so thankful for that. Josh has become a real friend. We went through First Peter together online uh, in about... 20 sessions, I think it was. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, we thought it'd be about six, but it turned out to be about 20. So we had, a, we had a great time together. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, actually, okay? Turn in to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look there, and then we will go over to really focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's going to mean a lot to me if all of you open your Bibles and are able to look at this because I'm going to go very carefully through the Scripture. Okay, so everybody get your Bible open. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, 
Asyncritus was uh, a wealthy man. He had he and his wife had met an apostle named Paul. Paul had come to Corinth, and uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy had actually been there for some period of time. Corinth was in the southern part of is in the southern part of Greece, and it was the biggest city at the time, bigger than Athens, which was not far away in the area of Achaia. Some of you have seen that word, perhaps, as you read your Bible. Uh, Asyncritus came to Christ, and his wife was also converted. And he was a, he was a wealthy man, um, had done really well in business, was a patron, according to the system that they had back then, a patron to many people. Uh, Asyncritus uh, also had several servants, and a couple of his servants, at least two of them, had come to know Jesus Christ. Quartus and his wife Saturna had come to know Christ at the same time, around the same time, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This made, this made Asyncritus and his wife actually close in a different way than they had ever been with any of their servants. They had several, but these became, of course, their real friends in Christ. These were, these were, this was their brother and sister, right? And, they had actually some fellowship together as masters and servants in a way that was really special to them. When the Lord's Day uh, came every week, which was the first day of the week, the day that the Christians, the apostles had set for the believers to meet and uh, worship the Lord, it was a work day like every other day. People all worked until about 300, early 300s, they all worked on, on Sunday in the Roman world. So when they got together was, uh, in most churches around the Roman, uh, in, in the Roman provinces and so forth, was on, uh, on the evening, in the evening, after the work day was finished. So the servants had worked very hard, uh, uh, Syncretus had, had worked hard at his, uh, kind of business businesses that he was uh, taking care of, and it was now uh, the end of the day on Sunday, and uh, it was time to gather with the other believers. Cordus and his and his wife uh, Saturna helped prepare the food actually for them to take to the take down the street to the other wealthy man's house. His name was Gaius. And uh, he was a believer, and so they, they prepared food for the, all four of them to go, and uh, they made themselves a sack of, uh, well, they had some water, jug of water, and they had some bread, and I think a few grapes. Uh, but they prepared a pretty sumptuous meal for their master, Quartus, and his, I mean, rather, Asyncritus and his wife, and they put it in a, a basket or two, put some wine in there, and all of the things that would make for a nice meal. But they were used to eating a nice meal, of course. And so uh, they all headed out together uh, to Gaius's house. Gaius, uh, like I told you, was also a wealthy man. He had a very commodious house, very big house. And so when they walked down the street and walked into the front area, just kind of open to the street there, um, they could see all the way back past the end of the courtyard. The torches were already lit for the meeting. There'd be about 50 or 60 people gather in the Corinthian church. It was a, it was a lot of people for a house church, but that's the way they gathered. They were able to do that in his house because he had a, a very big house. 
uh, and he was the host of the whole church, the end of the book of Romans. Paul says in the end of the book of Romans, which he was writing from the Corinthian church when he said that. So he was host to everybody. It was just one church in Corinth. They all met in that big home. They greeted each other on the way in. Of course, the wealthy guys, they, they had a lot in common and the servants had a lot in common. They hugged each other. They loved each other. This was the body of Christ. They'd all experienced the same thing of becoming believers in Jesus Christ. Well, they walked on back through the center of the house and uh, into the courtyard. And uh, there was a little raised a step up where you would go into a kind of a dining area that was around the peripheral part of the courtyard. There was a fountain in the middle. And uh, this was the place where people normally ate. They ate what was called a triclinium, which was a three-sided table open in the middle. They would be couches coming out from the side. So maybe 12 or 13 people could be seated there. Well, it was just assumed that the, that the wealthy guys, the friends of Gaius who had become believers would sit there. That was their, their place to sit. So Asyncritus and his wife, his wife sort of sat on the edge of the couch, but Asyncritus stretched out on the couch in the Roman fashion, in the, in the fashion of the day, and leaning on one elbow, and that's where he would eat. Uh, Quartus and his wife quickly went in the middle section, began to prepare the food, take it out of the baskets, get the wine poured into a goblet. And, um, well, the food was hot, and they just, uh, they just went ahead and began to eat. Everybody would expect them to because the food was warm, and, and uh, while people were still coming in, which would take a, a period of time because they came from different parts of the city, they just began to eat, and all of them there were having a great time. Others of them, like Quartus and his wife, um, they sat in the courtyard. Quartus sat down on, against the, the wall of the, uh, the fountain, and he and his wife, he wanted to be able to you know, look up there and see if his master needed anything. And every once in a while, he'd hop up and fill his goblet up again, right, make sure he had the wine that he needed. And, uh, you know, and eventually somebody, Gaius, I suppose, the head of the house, he got up and broke a big, broke a big piece of uh, flatbread, and they began to pass it around. This was a symbolic thing just to say we begin this meal by breaking bread, but this represents the body of Christ being broken. And then... They had a goblet which they poured, and they began to pass that around, kind of a special drink, special goblet, special bread, to help them remember that the reason that they met together and had their relationship together was because of what Jesus Christ had done, right? And this is the meal that is called the Lord's Supper, okay? That's the meal that is called the Lord's Supper. I want to talk about that. Very experienced. Of course, that was a fictitious uh, uh, story. But it happened, no doubt, very similar to that every Lord's Day. All right? Now, before we look at that uh, situation in the house of Gaius in chapter 11, I want us to read something out of chapter 10 just to help us get a little focus on what the Lord's Supper was about. Okay? Now, let me just tell you before we get into this, the Lord's Supper is one of the handful of very important things that the Lord has designed for the church. So don't think of it as just a little tack-on thing that the church does every once in a while. That would be a completely mis- complete misunderstanding of the idea of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper dealt with one of some of the greatest, most 
you know, core issues of the church. It was a very important time, and it had been ordered by the Lord Himself, along with another ordinance, that term ordinance called baptism. These were two things that the Lord Himself, that Christ Himself had ordered to be done by the local church. So it was very important for churches to do this, and as we shall find, to do it in the right way. Very important. This is not an insignificant thing, as it seems to be, frankly, in many churches. So let's go to chapter 10 and see see if we can learn something to get us ready for looking at Gaius' house and what goes on or went on in that day in the first century, all right? In chapter 10, it's a couple of it's in the end of a couple of chapters, really, about idolatry. So the subject is not the Lord's Supper here. But he does say something about the Lord's Supper as he talks about idolatry in verse 14 and following. Actually, we'll pick it up in verse 16, okay? In verse 16. Paul says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless... A sharing in the body, or in the blood of Christ. The word sharing there is, you ever heard that word koinonia? It means communion or fellowship. Isn't, isn't the cup of blessing which we bless, that's that special cup, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing or a fellowship or a communion in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, he said, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel, he said. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What he means by that is that when sacrifices were made to idols, uh, there would be, then you'd take that meat that had been offered and you'd actually eat the meat. You'd at least eat part of it. Part of that meat would be shared by the people who'd offered the sacrifices. Okay? So there would be places actually, kind of a restaurant in a way, where they could serve meat that had been offered to sacrifices. And look what he says about it. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? That happened in Israel as well when they offered a sacrifice, right? Uh, What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? That was the Gentile practice. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to to whom? Just speak speak out, okay? They sacrifice to demons, right? They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers or have communion with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Well, you can see that he's talking about idolatry. He's using some Old Testament uh, allusions as well to the way the sacrifices were made in the Old Testament. It was always a characteristic of sacrifices, almost all the sacrifices, not everyone. The burnt offering was a little bit different. It was complete and whole uh, offering to the Lord. But most of the sacrifices, some of that meat would be taken and it would be eaten. 
and particularly eaten, uh, often eaten by the people that actually brought, brought the sacrifices to be given. Like the Passover meal, for instance, that Passover lamb, right? Remember that story? Okay. So the idea behind this was that in offering a sacrifice, the, the commun- there was a kind of a communion that was being illustrated or symbolized by the eating of the actual sacrifice yourself. So you're about as, you're, you're having, it's hard for us to even understand, not being idol worshipers, but there was in, in the psyche of the people at that time, this was a way to actually share their lives with the God that they're worshiping. Now Paul said that it's not really a God, it's actually a demon when they worship idols. But a similar thing happens when we take that special cup and that special bread and we eat that special bread and, and that special cup. We have a kind of a communion in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ with the Lord himself. Does that make sense in a way? It's a little difficult for us to capture in our thinking, but it's what was happening. Now, two things are being said right here that will set us up for what we're about to look at in Gaius' house. First of all, um, we see that the fellowship that we have, which is represented by the special cup and the special bread, is a fellowship in a horizontal sense with the Lord himself. Rather, in a vertical sense with the Lord himself. Secondly, we see, because there's only one bread, one, one body of Christ and one blood of Christ, and we share in that, in the symbolic special bread and cup that we take, because there's only one Christ, right, and we're sharers in that, we, are, we have fellowship with each other horizontally, okay? So to get my words right, there is, there is fellowship that we have or communion You recognize that word sometimes used for the Lord's Supper, don't you? There is communion that we have with the Lord, and there's communion that we have with each other. There is fellowship, in other words, or koinonia going on vertically and horizontally. Now, we all set with that idea? Everybody got that? Nod your head, because I just keep talking, you know, until you nod your head, okay? All right, so so this is the thing that is precious to the Lord. It's not just eating bread or drinking wine or juice, but it's the fellowship with the Lord and with each other that this meal uh, symbolizes and is to illustrate and we are to experience. Okay? Now, the problem with the Corinthian church was on the second level of fellowship. It was on the horizontal level of fellowship. They had some problems that were so serious on the horizontal level with fellowship that it cost them very dearly as a church and very dearly to many individuals. Don't take the Lord's Supper lightly, it's a serious thing to God. Okay? It's kind of like, um, it's just a symbol, you say, but it's kind of like the symbol of the flag of the United States. At least it used to be very honorable, right? And we would not want to desecrate that flag. Even though it was a symbol, it represented something that was very precious to us. Right? Amen? 
right? So the desecration of that, the burning of that, or the trampling on that, or even sometimes touching it to the ground, or you know, handling it in the wrong way, or putting it too low, <laughs> uh, and so forth, would, would be considered a very dishonorable thing to do. In the case of the Lord, it's a very serious thing to eat the Lord's Supper the right way. Okay? Now you can test my statement by what we're going to look at. Okay, so let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 now. Flip over to the second half of chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look together at the abuse, actually, of the Lord's Supper. We're going to learn a lot about it, though. Beginning in verse 17. Okay? 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 17. Everybody ready? Let's read the first section. And I want to make three statements about it that will help us as we go through this whole text. Here's the first section. Verse 17. But in giving this instruction, he means this next instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? I will not praise you. Well, that's a pretty startling thing for the apostle to say to this church, which he loved, these people he loved very dearly. This was a very, very serious thing. So let me give you a statement that helps us encapsulate what this first section is about. The Lord's Supper is a meal without divisions. Okay? The Lord's Supper is a meal without um, divisions. Now, think with me just a minute. The Church of Corinth, if you remember the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you realize that they had a lot of division problems. One of their division problems centered around the idea of people liking, sort of having their favorite itinerant apostle, and uh, just, you know, they, they just sort of liked that, and they didn't like the rest of it. So I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus, that spiritual group, you know, I'm of Jesus. And so they had already created some kind of divisions uh, in, in related to styles of presentation, speaking, and so forth that these apostles had. Now, that's not so uncommon to us today. Actually, people like the styles of certain ministers, right? And maybe they really disdain the style of somebody else. And Paul tries to say, look, have no division about this because we're all just servants of the Lord and we just each have our part. And uh, you should not think of us 
in a way that causes separation among the body of Christ. And he spends some time talking about the foolishness of that in the first chapters of, of the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter to 1 Corinthians. Now, this division must be something different than that. Because he says, in part, I believe it, which would be a funny statement to say, since he's already spent about three chapters talking about divisions of another kind. So the divisions that he's talking about here when they come together in the Lord's Supper is a status division. A division that has to do with the wealthy and the poor. And when they came together, they carried the status divisions of the world, which were totally acceptable, right? Totally acceptable to think that's just the way their system worked. And they carried that status, those status divisions into the, into the church. And that was not acceptable. Okay? You get, the, you get the idea? So he says, look, when you come together, he's going to use that term five times. He said, when you come together, you come together to eat this meal every Sunday evening. When you come together, there are divisions that exist among you. And you are actually eating your own supper first. Just going ahead and eating with complete disregard to other people in the congregation. Now, let me just tell you, they hadn't discovered potluck yet. Okay. So what they did was when they came into the assembly, again, they brought their own baskets of food and they just had their own food that they ate. Okay. Everybody got the idea? So they didn't have, we have potluck. We don't worry about everybody getting some of everybody else's food. But this was not the case at this time. They just brought in their own food. And uh, at least the wealthy people, at least, began to go ahead. They just went ahead and ate. Maybe everybody just went ahead and ate. Without, what he means by that is they just had no, dis, no regard for anybody else. Okay? And some of them actually got drunk. Now, let me divide this thing up a little bit. When I say it's a meal, when is, it is a meal without divisions. First of all, let me just say it is a meal. In the early church, and I think the Lord actually even means this today, that the Lord's Supper is a supper, okay? It's actually a meal, the word supper. Just, now, I don't know how you use supper down here. That could be anything. I don't know what it is down here. It changes from place to place in the country, but... It's a meal, right? It is a meal. The Lord's Supper was a meal with special elements. This is the only place, the only text in the Bible where the term the Lord's Supper is used. Sometimes, though, it is called the agape feast. It was a feast. It was actually a, a banquet. Okay, you're coming to really enjoy your relationships in Christ, and you're coming to eat food. And in the minds of people in that uh, era, eating food together was the key way to experience fellowship with each other. In fact, when the Bible talks about what heaven is like, when Jesus talks about what heaven is like, it's sitting around a big table with the patriarchs and people coming from the east and the west to, to eat together. You see, that's the idea in their mind because that is synonymous with the idea of fellowship. Okay? So the Lord's Supper is built on something that happened years before called the Passover. That was a Passover supper, right? It was a Passover supper. 
Then they established the practice. The Lord designed for them to have the Passover meals every year as one of the three feasts that people had to participate in and come to Jerusalem for. It was a supper. And then we have the Last Supper, of course, that Jesus was a Passover meal that Jesus experienced with his disciples. And then we have the Christian Lord's Supper. And in the Christian Lord's Supper, we anticipate, or somebody said, it's kind of like a rehearsal dinner for the big dinner, which is the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb. Got the idea? So it was actually a meal. Uh, it wasn't the what we call sometimes the sip and chip. Okay? <laughs> wasn't just a little. Now, that's an approximation, trying to reduce down, minimalize, actually down to maybe some basic elements of a meal. Uh, so I understand how that can develop, but it wasn't that way because obviously some people got drunk even. On, they didn't get drunk on this, I'll tell you that for sure, right? They were actually eating the meal, drinking wine, uh, and I'm, I, we use juice, I get that totally. It's the fruit of the vine, what the Bible says, actually. But uh, they actually ate a meal. They satiated themselves with a meal. Okay? So that's the original intent and practice of the early church. It was a meal that they had together. And the meal, then, was the fellowship that they enjoyed with each other. So one of the problems, of course with the method that I used for many years, and, and I'm not sure of everything you do here, but it's typical of most churches. We use the small piece of bread and, you know, the, the drink. And, um, and, and I get that, but we use that. Well, it, it's, that practice actually is, is uh, sort of a, an experience that's very individualistic. Do you feel what I'm talking about? It's very individualistic, and it perhaps represents the time in the church meeting where you have maybe the least fellowship, you know, as just an event itself. You'd say that's the Lord's Supper, or that event itself is a very isolated, individual experience in a way, unlike, say, a meal uh, with the special elements being highlighted. I'm just saying this is the way it was, okay? Um, so... It's a meal, and it's a meal without divisions. He said, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. I hear that there are divisions among you. And he said, when you come together, it's you come together for the worse. Think about that. Can you imagine of the Lord, the Lord saying to you through the Apostle Paul or whoever, that when you're actually gathering together to eat this supper, that you're actually coming together for the worse? It's, it's, it's better for you not to do it than to do it. Your doing of it is worse than you're not doing it. Right? You're coming together to do what? To eat, and that's the right way to say it, not to take it, but to eat it. Okay? You're coming together to eat this supper that you think is the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper, he said. It's your own supper. Why is it not the Lord's Supper? Because the Lord's Supper 
has this one shining characteristic. It is about true fellowship between believers and with the Lord. And if that fellowship is broken, then it's just another supper that you're having with people. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's even more dangerous than that, but it's at least just that. Does that make sense? Okay. You're just having your own supper when you come together. So the Lord's Supper is a meal in the, in the uh, description we have here. And I think you can see it in other places in the Scripture as well. But it is a meal, and it is a meal without divisions. All right, let's look a little bit further. Let's go to verse 23 now in another section. Everybody hanging in there with me? Look at verse 23. For he said, or he said, by the way, let me just mention in verse 22, do you not have, do you despise the church and shame those who are poor? Um, Don't you have houses in which you can eat a drink? He's not saying that they didn't meet in Gaius' house and they were not supposed to have a meal anymore. He's saying just if you're if it's about hunger to you, if it's about satiating yourself, do that at home before you come. This is a this is a meal that is meant to be shared. Okay, this is meant to be shared. This is about fellowship, sharing of our lives with each other. You get that idea? Everybody together? Okay, let's look at the next section. Verse 23. For he says. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper. It's interesting, isn't it? Saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For, he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. That gets into the next section, but I wanted you to see it. Okay, now, why does he put this section in here? Why does he go through this thing about the cup and the, and the bread and what Jesus said? Do this in remembrance of me. Um, by the way, just before I try to answer that, do this in remembrance of me may well be something like this. Do, it, do this as a, as a memorial to me. And really it is in the doing of it that you're memorializing the Lord, okay? That is symbolizing the death, and re, uh, the death of Jesus Christ. It's in the doing of it. Okay, so why did he put that in there? Did he put it in there so pastors will always know what to say when you eat the Lord's Supper together? You have to always say this little thing every time you you eat the Lord's Supper together. And I want to say very strongly, no, that's not the case. That's not why he put that in there at all. Uh, In fact, we don't have to say those words. Uh, They're helpful sometimes. If we don't do it very often, sometimes we need to go over those basic ideas again. But it's not required of us to say those words. Nobody's ever required it that I know of in the Bible. Wouldn't you agree? There's no real statement that says this is prescribed. You have to say these words. But what that is to illustrate by Paul is the sacrificial nature 
of Christ's death. Okay? The spilling of his blood, the sacrifice of his body for you. All right? He's illustrating that eating this meal is a display of that until he comes. And then he says, so the second, let me just make the second point then. The Lord's Supper is a meal that reflects Christ's sacrifice. It reflects Christ's sacrifice. Now that may seem insignificant to you. We all know that Jesus Christ sacrificed, but it's highly significant according to what he said next, okay? So remember that when you come together to eat this meal together, are you thinking about this as you eat this meal together? It is a... It is a way that we display through these symbols the sacrificial work of Christ. Amen? The sacrificial work of Christ. Third point. And the last point. Look at this. Verse 26. For, he says, so he's going to explain something. Or rather, I'm sorry, verse 27. Therefore, he's concluding something. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is a meal that is not only joyful and celebratory, meant to be a positive thing, but it is a meal that may bring judgment, and even severe judgment, as we will see. Okay? And here's where the judgment comes in. There are people in taking or in eating the supper together are not eating it in a worthy manner. Now, what does that word worthy mean? Well, how many of you are worthy to to, for, uh, to receive the, the death of Jesus Christ, the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ. Anybody here worthy of that? I think we'd all say we're not worthy, right? Who's worthy to do that? The word really should be translated, in my view, and maybe it's in your margin, I don't know, but I think others have seen this. The word is not uh, worthy, but the word is really something like in a fitting or a befitting way, in a in a way that accords to what we have just heard. When he puts therefore, he's saying there is a judgment attached to not uh, eating this meal in a fitting way. Does that make sense? Again, you have to nod to help me see if I'm getting across at all. Now, that's a perfectly legitimate use of that word, okay? So it's a, you're, you're to eat this meal in accordance to the, to the thing that has happened that the meal is about. In other words, Jesus Christ has sacrificed His body for you, given His, spilled His blood for you. And here you are, selfishly, forgetting everybody else around you and eating, making yourself drunk and getting yourself full on food without any consideration of other people. It is the height of hypocrisy to do such a thing. This meal is about the sacrifice of Christ. And when we especially even bring up that cup itself, that special cup and that special bread, I think that would be the apogee of our hypocrisy. 
we're saying Christ died, but look at us. Look at the way we're living out our life in Christ. It's totally uncharacteristic or unfitting with the way Jesus Christ gave His life for us. It's in Congress. It doesn't fit. For you to be a selfish person, to have divisions among you and to not really care about other people, not have a love for other people and a sharing of your life, in this case, seen by the sharing, actually the sharing of food, which wasn't taking place, right? They weren't even sharing their food. Not even a syncretus was sharing his food with Cordus and his wife, right? Who's his blood-bought brother and sister, right? For whom Christ died. And not even sharing that would be, of course, a very serious form of hypocrisy that the Apostle Paul is very exercised about. He's very exercised. You might think it's very incidental. They're just following the customs of the culture. I mean, the the, the servants ate by themselves. The wealthier people ate by themselves. Everybody recognizes the norms of the culture. Everybody knows how this works. The more educated eat together, the less educated or whatever. That's just the way it goes, but not to the Apostle Paul. He sees a fatal flaw in the way they're eating their meals separate from each other, not sharing their, their food with each other, okay, as a symbol of real, as a way to show real fellowship with each other. Okay? Let's, let's read it further. It's a meal that may bring awful judgment. Look, look at it here. Therefore, when you eat the bread and drink the cup that is to proclaim the Lord's death, in an unfitting, un, uh, in a way that doesn't reflect, a way that's not corresponding to the death of Christ in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Likely meaning guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. But he says a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. He doesn't mean here, um, he doesn't mean that we have to stop and get morose and sad and think for a while. That's not really what he's saying here. He's just saying... Look, when you're coming in to have this celebratory meal, it's actually a happy meal, okay? It's a happy, joyous banquet that we're having based on our fellowship we have in Jesus Christ. And when you come to do that, you should stop and reflect. You should think, how am I sharing my life with these other believers for whom Christ died? Am I reflecting? Am I eating this meal in a way that is characteristic of a person for whom Christ sacrificed himself? Am I extending that in my relationship with other people? Okay? Or am I just selfishly living in my sectarian way? If you do that, judgment comes. That's what he says. So, man ought to think about that. He's, he should think about this. A woman should think about this. A person should be aware of this when we're coming to eat this meal together. 
He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, he says, verse 29, if he does not judge the body rightly. Here I believe, we, I mean, we have a choice. Is he talking about the body of Christ or the body of believers? Well, the body of believers is the body of Christ. But he's talking particularly about the church here, as he will say in a couple of sentences later. He's saying when we do this, we need to discern or judge the body correctly as we're coming in. We need to think about these are people for whom Christ died, for whom Christ sacrificed. I cannot have this meal and not be sacrificial in sharing my life with them. Or I drink judgment to myself. For this reason, he said in verse 30, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And he doesn't mean just falling asleep in the church service like maybe a few of you feel like you need to do right now. <laughs> like I've done too. He doesn't mean that. He means many of you died. There's a judgment on the church here. Now, obviously... We know that people die for other reasons and people get sick for other reasons and God has a lot of purposes. But here, the people didn't see it. They didn't understand this. It just seemed like a bad season to them. But the discerning eye of the Apostle Paul caught the problem and attached it to this very issue of fellowship. He helped him see that their divided spirit among each other even though they were just following the norms of society, their divisions among them created a judgment so severe that it actually cost some people's life. Look, I just want you to look at me. This really happened. It cost people's life because they ate the Lord's Supper wrongly. Amazing, isn't it? That's, a, that's why I say this is not an attachment to the church life that you do every once in a while. This is something very integral to church life. And so some people actually died. What a judgment on the church as a whole that this would happen. But he says in verse 31, if we judged ourselves rightly, hear the use of the word judge as evaluated our church rightly, as he said a couple sentences earlier, judge the body rightly, evaluate the body rightly, is what he means, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So let me... Let me Try to, let's try to think about this for a minute. He's assuming these people are believers here. And that what's happening to them is a discipline from God on the church. Look how severe God's discipline can be. Right? Look how severe it is because of not eating this meal correctly. He's assuming they're believers, but if this kind of persisted, this thing persists and persists and persists, he would have no right to say they're believers. He would have to say, well, you're just condemned along with the world. If you're doing this in a way that is knowingly, 
I think he would say, you would be condemned along with the world. So God is good to you. God is good to the church to discipline the church so that you will not give evidence of being a person who, or a body of people who are just unregenerate. It's a discipline of God. Well, there are the three statements. Let me give them to you again. First of all, the Lord's Supper is a meal without divisions. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a meal that reflects Christ's sacrifice. And thirdly, the Lord's Supper is a meal that is not only joyful and celebratory, but it may bring severe judgment if we do not reflect that sacrifice in our relationship with others. All right. Well, he has a, a solution to this, but it's only partial solution. He says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, that's what they did. That's what church life was for them. They came together to eat. That's what they did every week. Came together to eat. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. The word wait there, maybe it's in your margin of your Bible. It is, I think, in some Bibles. But wait can be the word welcome each other. Play the part of the host with each other. You know, give yourself for each other when you come together. Wait for one another. Like a waiter, right, at a table. Wait, waiting, serving. Serve each other with what you have and who you are. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Well, he wants to make sure that they at least correct this problem. Maybe this is, maybe they finally figured out what potluck meals are about at this point. I don't know. But it's not really the function, is it? It's the function shows the heart problem. Again, the biggest thing that the Corinthians had to deal with over and over again was this. They carried the culture into the church. Right? They confused, blurred the lines between the culture and the church. And the Lord's Supper, the meal of the Lord's Supper, which if you think about it, I mean, is just the main thing they did. That's what they did. They came together to eat. Then out of that, they shared their gifts with each other. People taught the scripture and so forth. But they came together to eat. This was, again, like I said, he mentions that five times here. When you come together to eat, that's what they did on the Lord's Day. So that fellowship was at the core of what they were about being illustrated through the meal that they had together. Okay? I think we've become really almost more Catholic than we have become New Testament in our understanding of the Lord's Supper. And I don't know what all this means to you. There, you know, we just have to figure these things out, educate ourselves and learn and think about these things. But there is a richness. As one who's been enjoying meals together with believers for 16 years now, I can tell you that there's something so rich and so powerful about fellowshipping together around food that I would really hate to 
miss that. I, I just would, I would really miss not having that meal together. And I fully understand why the Apostle Paul and the Apostles set this as one of the traditions to be followed by the churches. So I think as a body of believers, if I can just encourage you, weigh these things. Think about these things. I get it. I get why things, you know, we build our buildings in ways that we can't do. We feel like we can't do some of these things. We, we just, you know, there are all kinds of things that are, are, have gone on for years uh, in our lives. But I would say weigh these things. Uh, think about these things. Consider the values here. Consider what the Lord is doing when he designed for the churches to share meals together, okay? Think about how you could accomplish this great purpose and really begin to expand the thinking over whatever time it takes. Expand your thinking from something so isolated as we normally do to something that really gives you the opportunity to fellowship with one another, okay? So I'm encouraging you to consider that as a brother, all right, who really wants you to enjoy something that is rich and wonderful. Amen? Finally, I'm through, but let me, let me say this. What if you're a person who, uh, regardless of the fact that we've discovered potluck, what if you still have in your heart fellowship problems? You know? What if you've got your group and well, look, I get it that we can't know everybody with the same level of intimacy. I get that, right? I totally get that. It's it's hard in a larger church to spend as much time with every person. You can't. You just it's going to be impossible to do that just right. But what if you harbor something there? What if you're a person that really thinks you're kind of you and your group are kind of superior in a way to these other blood-bought Christians? You have that in your heart. You know, don't you don't you realize that it's so serious that God may he may even now be bringing disciplines into your life with the hope of correcting that heart problem that you have. Amen. So think seriously on your own level and your own family's level about what it means to have fellowship with other believers. If Christ can sacrifice His body and His blood for them, can you not love them? Can you not build relationships with them? Can you not share your life together? Do you have to be so isolated and so insular and so disconnected with people? Can't you open your heart to all kinds of people? I have every reason to believe you're a very friendly church, and I've experienced that already. But you know your heart, right? You know if this is there, and it's a, it's a deadly cancer. Get it out of there. Let's bow our heads and pray, all right? Let's close our eyes and thank the Lord for His teaching, okay? Thank you, Lord, for what you have given us in the Scriptures. It's so good and so right and so wonderful and such just nothing not to like about it if we would experience fellowship on this level in a consistent way so help us lord help this church as it thinks through its future and how to increase one of its core values of building true fellowship and 
help them with that and help us with that in our church and all of us, Lord. We have such a need to increase in these areas and maybe in a variety of ways, but especially help us in our own hearts individually to examine ourselves to see if we have this divided spirit in our own hearts. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much.